if you have a really good sense of who your target reader is, then you're better equipped to target them from many sides. It's not just try to get all the newspaper reviews. You also have to target them with advertising to meet them at their point of sale. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to The Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello, and welcome to the Author's Corner. I am your host, Robin Colucci, and today we are going to talk with a pretty brilliant book promoter by the name of Dana Kay. And what I really invite you to listen for in this interview today is some of the incredibly innovative and creative things that Dana is about to share with us that she has done with and for her clients who have engaged the services of Kay Publicity. So Dana Kay earned her BA in fiction writing from Columbia College, Chicago. And after college, she worked as a freelance writer and book critic. Now, this experience provided the necessary industry insight and that combined with her early adoption of social media. And you'll hear about that. It was pretty darn early. She paved the way to launch Kay Publicity. Now, Dana has become known for her innovative ideas and her knowledge of current trends, and she's frequently sought out as a speaker and a media source. She was profiled in Crane's Chicago business for her success in launching a business during a recession. She was a Publishers Weekly Star Watch honoree and has been interviewed by dozens of media outlets on the topics of book publicity, online marketing, and the future of publishing. She is also the founder of the Midwest Mystery Conference, formerly Murder and Mayhem in Chicago. And she's the author of her own book which is called Your Book, Your Brand, the step-by-step guide to launching your book and boosting your sales. So get out your notepads, listeners, because Dana has got some incredible stuff to share with us today. Let's get into it. So Dana, welcome to the Author's Corner. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat with you today. Well, I'm so excited to have you here today because as I mentioned to you before, this whole idea of like authors have so many questions and issues around publicity and how do you get coverage and how do you get noticed and to have you come here and share with us today about this largely mysterious realm in the world of authorship is a real treat for us and for our listeners. So a wholehearted welcome to you. I'm excited to demystify the process. I think one of the things I know is that authors' primary job is to write. They're not... No one I know wrote a book because they're excited about the promotion aspect of it. So it's no wonder that this piece is something that authors tend to dread or feel really overwhelmed by. That is so spot on. So tell me when authors come to you, what leads them to you and your organization in the first place? 
So I think many authors realize that even if they're signed with a publisher, even if they've gotten you know the six-figure, seven-figure deal, that ultimately they're working for the publisher and they have little control over how much budget and efforts are allocated to their book in particular. And so we've been seeing, especially in the recent couple of years, that authors are wanting to take control of their promotion even more, that we serve in some ways as their insurance policy, that ultimately we as an outside agency work for the authors. Our loyalty lies to whoever is writing the check. And so if the publisher doesn't necessarily have the budget or the bandwidth to do everything that the author wants, we're able to step up and do it. And so I think a lot of the authors come to us because they want to make sure everything possible is done for their book, or they just really don't know what to do. So they don't know what questions to ask their publisher. They don't know if their publisher is doing everything. They're not really sure what's going to move the needle, and they don't really have the interest per se to figure that out. And so I think our authors who hire us for full service campaigns just really want us to take things over for them. And then I also have a membership community called Your Breakout Book. And that's the authors who are interested. They are curious in building their brand online and doing their own promotion, but they need guidance and support. So there's kind of two psychographics, if you will. It's the author who has no interest in doing anything and just wants someone to take it over for them. And then the author who is kind of curious of taking control of their own brand and just wants some guidance to be told what to do, guided what to do and have the support of the community. Yeah. And you know that makes me think of something else that I learned about you is that I want to get into this a little bit because you were an early adopter of social media. And for our listeners who maybe haven't listened to every episode, maybe haven't heard me say this before, but publishing really went into social media kicking and screaming. I think they're still reticent to get involved and they don't seem to have come anywhere close to mastery. I think like the first six to 10 years, they were just kind of hands over ears, la, 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 it's not happening. So you as an early adapter, I'd love to hear a little bit about you know, at what point did you realize this was going to be a thing? And what were the, some of the steps that you took? I think that ultimately the thing that hasn't changed and that I don't think will ever change is that people will want to know what books to read. Like that's something readers, I would say people, because everyone's a reader, <laughs> but <laughs> readers will always want to know where to find out about new books. The only thing that changes is where they do that, the mediums, and those things change rather quickly. And so in early, no, in late 2008 was when I was on Twitter and looking at the conversations that were happening there. But keep in mind, in 2008, the term follow wasn't in the zeitgeist (laughs) at all. And so I remember a conversation I had at my first client was with Harper. And I had a conversation with her in-house team. And I said, there's this thing called Twitter. We'd like to use it to try to reach more readers. And they're like, what is that? And I say, well, well, people sign up to follow you. And they looked at me like, that is the creepiest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> like <life."> stalkers. <laughs> exactly. It wasn't something that was a term. The term follow is actually fairly new. And so 
what made me interested about some of these platforms, and this was also when Facebook had opened up to the public. So I had been in college in 2002 to 2005. So I had a Facebook page as a college student, but then it opened up to the public and all of a sudden everyone had access and no one really knew what to do about it. And because I had already been on there for a few years, I had a better understanding, was better equipped to lead authors on this journey. And what I really liked at the time about social media was this ability to connect with people from all walks of life and to share ideas and share comments and thoughts and articles and photos all over the world. And what made this really unique for books is that book people love talking about books. We love talking about books. And so there were these communities that formed either as Facebook groups or on Facebook pages or in Twitter threads where people were talking about books. And that was an area that publishers were ignoring. It was getting harder and harder to secure print media coverage or radio spots or the more of those traditional media outlets. And to the point of, I didn't, our first client had a publicist, had an in-house person who's terrific. And therefore I didn't need to do what she was doing. I didn't need to step on her toes. I needed to do the things that they weren't doing. The other piece that I think gave me a unique perspective was before I started doing publicity, I was a book critic. And because again, love reading, love telling people what to read. And myself was struggling to place articles. Like I got about a hundred books a month there was no way I could review them all or not even review them all, just like review all the good ones. Even I wrote for the Chicago Sun Times. I wrote for Time Out. I wrote for some you know, feminist publications, different places, but there was a lot of books that I really wanted to write about, but didn't have a place for them. And so I started a blog and I would review a lot of those on my blog. So this was also, which seems so silly to think about this book bloggers weren't a thing at this time. Right. The term book blog Mm -mm. wasn't a thing. So I'm also trying to advocate for sending books to book bloggers because the publishers weren't wanting to do that. They're like, they're just regular people, these amateurs. Why are we sending them advanced copies? And I said, because there's people like me who want to talk about books, want to recommend books, can write good reviews. And it was a blog spot at the time. Before that, it was a live journal. Um, And so I think (laughs) it's very interesting to see how far we've come. But ultimately, the things are the same. People want to find out about new books and people love sharing the great books that they read. Yeah. And this is way before Goodreads, right? I mean, I think Goodreads was like 2010, maybe, maybe. Wow. Maybe you're right. I'm trying to think back of when when Goodreads started, but that was in that is another platform that made such an impact on the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just find that so interesting because, you know, there's a reason why we call it traditional publishing (laughs) because they're not necessarily the first to adopt new things, but you know, they do well with what they know also. And to be fair, I think it's a problem of scale. And that's always what I've seen with the big five, especially it's turning around the Titanic. They right big five publishers have immensely talented pool of employees who, because they publish so frequently and have so many books are not able to do their best, most creative work. And so I think that it's one of our, you know, as much as our company has grown dramatically over the years, we always try to be 
to stay nimble and to stay agile because as soon as we're like, well, we can't do that because it doesn't fit on our what the conveyor belt of the factory, right. um, that's when we've really lost sight of our mission. Yeah. And it is so hard when you're doing so many books and not only, I think when social media first came out, it was especially hard because it's not only like doing the task, it's even just learning what this thing is and how to utilize it and everything else. So, I mean, it really is, it was a big, a huge disruption. It was a huge disruption and it did many great things. And then now we're in this period where things are shifting towards something else. So I think the challenge is always like, what is going to be the next thing? And trying to have your sights on the next thing that people are going to go to when to find out about books when Facebook is too data hungry or Twitter is too toxic, where are they going to go next? And well, it went TikTok. I mean, talk a little bit about TikTok. <laughs> so I read that TikTok literally caused a New York Times bestseller. I was like, well, I never thought I'd see that day. I mean, I obviously don't understand TikTok. <laughs> so it goes back to I so I was an early er early-ish adopter of TikTok. I was aware of TikTok for many years because I have young cousins and they would show me their little dances and we would do some right. lip syncing things and that was all fun. And it was in February of 2020 where I went to a couple workshops on TikTok and was tracking some of the algorithmic things particularly with the pandemic in China. TikTok is a Chinese company. And I was like, this, their algorithm is too incredible for this not to be a thing. Mm -hmm. And so I started, I told our team, I said, we're getting on TikTok. We're going to figure this out. We're doing it. And then March of 2020 happened. And that platform just exploded because everyone was bored in the house and in the house bored to make a TikTok reference. And so I think that was a little bit lucky on our part in terms of that having that foresight to see that people were really and that's where book talk really book talk was one of the first tiktok communities that really got big there's now many other you know nomad life tiktok and witch talk and all these different communities but book talk was one that top hashtags i think it's up to i want to say 8 billion uses Something, wow. yeah. I have to look at that stat, so That's don't like, quote that stat. But it's in the person on the planet. Yeah, it's in the billions oh. of uses, and then also the demographic has widened. So it used to be much more teenagers to twenty-five-year-olds, and the amount of millennials and boomers on the platform has just exploded. That pie chart looks a lot more even now. Right, right. That's something I notice. It's usually the really younger kids that get on a new social media platform first and then you know their parents and grandparents swoop in (laughs) exactly i don't know how many grandparents are (laughs) actively on tiktok but i think the teenagers in particular are always wanting to have carve out their own little place on the internet snapchat is one that i think is still fairly pure (laughs) for that age group but there's a lot of new things that are coming out and i'm it's interesting to see how that will shift and i think Gen Zers in particular, I think, are really attuned to free speech, really attuned to the people behind companies. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious how it will shift when with you know the exit of Sheryl Sandberg and Musk taking over Twitter and all of these different things. So I'll be curious of how where the younger demographic goes next. Yeah, that's all really interesting. So speaking of demographics, I imagine so 
two questions trying to get out at the same time. Okay. All good. Speaking of demographics, I would imagine that part of your, a big part of your helping authors from other books is targeting. Tell us a little bit about how you think about targeting when you're helping an author promote a book. Absolutely. So I, a lot of authors are like, well, what do we do? Focus groups and data and stats. And I love data. However, it's more important to me that authors have a clear sight of who their typical reader is. You're a writer. In theory, you can imagine a character, (laughs) imagine what they look like, where they live, what they sound like. And once you have a good sense of your target audience, then you can start to identify where to reach them. So a great exercise is to think about your book, picture your book on someone's shelf. What else is on their shelf? Mm. What other books are sitting next to it? It doesn't have to be the same book. Like I look at my shelf and I read quite diversely, but the types of books, what kinds of stories am I drawn to? Like if I, for example, I read fiction and nonfiction fairly evenly. However, I'm drawn to more narrative nonfiction because my chops are in creative writing. I like fiction as well. So like maybe the person who's more heavily fiction would do some narrative nonfiction. Maybe someone who owns a business would have some like businessy books up on their shelf too. So getting a sense of what else is on that person's shelf will start to give you a better sense of who they are. It's kind of like if you go to, I don't know about you, if I go to a dinner party, I always look at people's bookshelves so I can kind of assess (laughs) what they're about. I know. I love going through people's books. You do learn about them. Of course. And their interests. Yeah. Yeah. And then from there, once you have a sense of who your audience is, like, again, I love avatars, right? So especially if you have someone in your life that is that avatar. So anytime I think about- I think that's the best way to do an avatar is like pick a real person. Pick a real person and think about, you know, if I'm doing a, any sort of like political or history book, I meet my father-in-law. That's the typical, you know, the typical reader. Historical fiction and women's fiction is my mother-in-law. You know, YA is like my little cousin or whomever. So then you start to, then you can break that down. So I can think about my father-in-law and I can think, okay, he subscribes to the Wall Street Journal. He reads lots of papers on his iPad. He mostly reads eBooks. He gets a lot of them out of the library, but also buys from Amazon. You can start to think about their behaviors, and then that'll give you a better sense of how to target. So again, my in-laws, both of them, they read mostly on eBooks. They get them out of the library and they buy them on Amazon and they subscribe to BookBub because they love a bargain. And (laughs) if they are mostly reading on eBooks, how I would market to them might be very different than how I would market someone who only gets the first edition hardcover from the independent bookstore. Right. (laughs) And so I think thinking about not just, so once you get your target reader, then you have to think about, okay, how am I going to reach them? And how do I reach them at the point of sale? Yeah. You know, so if they are traveling a lot and they get their books from Hudson Books in the airport, well, then how am I going to reach them there? We did, one of our clients did a, had a big order from Hudson's. It was a thriller, it was a best, like perfect airport airplane read. And so we worked with the airports to do ad advertising in the airport with a call to action and be like, go to Hudson's to get the book. Oh, perfect. And yep. so thinking about how you can, in same with, again, I don't know if you can see it, but above my head, for those of you listening, this doesn't work. We have a subway ad 
for one of our clients and we targeted the train line that goes out to the airport. And there's a QR code that you can start reading now. It gave you the first 50 pages that you can read on the way to the airport. And guess what you could find at the airport bookstore? Her book was on front tables. Oh, that's brilliant. I actually love that because that's a decent train ride out to JFK. (laughs) I mean, it's really, and then you're getting people who are, again, this was 2009, 2010. So I don't remember if internet was available on the planes then, but before like you need to read and people were reading, they couldn't do their computer, couldn't do anything. And so I think that if you have a really good sense of who your target reader is, you're better equipped to target them from many sides. It's not just try to get all the newspaper reviews. You also have to target them with advertising. You have to meet them at their point of sale. Social media does help. If that person's on LinkedIn or that person's on Facebook and they see someone recommending your book, they might recall that they read a review in the Wall Street Journal or saw your name on a train ad. And so you have to get to that person several times before they even remember you, let alone purchase your book. Right. Yeah. So do you also help your clients get reviewed? Yes, that's a main. So for our full service campaigns, we do, I believe that the success of a book requires a three-prong approach. So the first prong is publicity. Publicity is earned media coverage. So that's other people talking about your book. So those are the reviews, the features, interviews like this one is publicity. And it's things that other people are having you on to talk about your book, or they're sharing your book with their audience. Marketing is the second prong. Marketing is placed media coverage. That's you talking about your book. So that is your social media, your newsletter, if you're doing any advertisements, if you're doing a Goodreads giveaway, this is media that you control the message. You placed it. It's not always paid. It's sometimes paid. It's often free, but you control the message. So marketing is great because you control the message and you control when it comes out. If I send a newsletter, it's going out that day. With publicity, you don't have very little control, right? If you have an interview, but there's breaking news, which there seems to be breaking news every day, and <laughs> that your interview gets bumped, right? Yeah. You don't have control over that. Someone reviews your book, you have no control if that is a positive review or a helpful review. There's limited control. However, publicity has a little bit more clout, right? Mm-hmm. Because they don't have control. Whereas marketing, people are a little skeptical of marketing. So those two things work hand in hand because you need the clout from the publicity. But then you can amplify that clout with marketing. So a New York Times review is terrific. But if you leverage that blurb from the New York Times and include it in your newsletter and use it on the front cover of your book and use it on ads, it's going to get a lot more runway. Marketing is great. And if you have a great platform, that's terrific. And that marketing can help leverage other publicity, right? If I have a huge social media presence or a podcast or something, another media outlet might be interested, more interested in talking to me. So those two things play hand in hand. You really need both. And then the third pillar is community outreach. Community is one of our core values. I believe that if you can get people at the grassroots level, they can really be your brand ambassadors. I know it sounds awful talking about books as like brands and products, but here we are. And so we do a lot of things with affinity groups, corporate partnerships, nonprofits, bookstores, libraries, things that are on 
the like on the ground or in recent years in the web, <laughs> wherever that might be. So all of our campaigns follow those three pillars because I believe that it's really what it takes to have a successful book launch. You can't just have... We've had instances where the publicity was great, but the book wasn't in stores. Uh-huh. You know, and we're seeing that sometimes now with Barnes and Noble not taking orders or books stuck on container ships or whatever it might be. And yeah. or they're waiting to be printed. Or That's they're waiting true. to be printed because we're out of, you know, no more trees. And yeah. I think that you can have one prong and it might feel good, right? Good publicity feels good, but ultimately most of us want to sell books. And so in order to have to really have a breakout book, I believe you need all three. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And really, if you have a traditional book deal and you would like another one one day, you had better sell books. Indeed. And enough books to at least earn back what they paid you to sign you, at least. I think the track record matters, although I think it's hard to say if it matters more now or less now, because I think a lot of publishers understand that from 2020 to 2022 currently that it's hard to compare sales numbers of the before times. Well, what's interesting is book sales were up during the pandemic, but that's overall. So individual performance. Yeah. We saw a lot of people going, the household names did very well during the pandemic. People were going back to their comfort reads. So our romance authors who have published 20 plus books or our thriller authors who had the next in their series come out, they all did really well. It was really tough for debuts. It was very tough for nonfiction. We were in this push and pull where media just wanted to talk about COVID, but none of us wanted to read about COVID. And so we had this really weird balance of trying to get our other nonfiction books covered by the media when all they want to talk about is the pandemic. And while we had a couple pandemic-related books, it was harder to get readers on board. While reading was up exponentially, it seemed that it was mostly the household names that benefited from that. Well, that I like how you put that, that people wanted that comfort of the known, right? Because there was so much unknown. And then, of course, last fall, some books were their publication dates were delayed due to paper shortages and labor shortages. And so it's been a interesting few years in publishing. I'm curious to hear more about how you all have pivoted in your promotion efforts as a result of this current environment. Quickly <laughs> and frequently is how we've pivoted. <laughs> uh, so different every day. Right? Different every day. I think one of the advantages is that our company has been a remote workforce since 2016. So this was not new to us. I've been doing online conferences and virtual events before then, maybe in 2014, 2015. So I was easily equipped to do all that. And my audience in particular was very they knew what Crowdcast was. They knew Zoom webinar. Like It wasn't anything that was an ordeal. And I think the biggest challenge was during lockdown was that everyone was bored. So there's a lot of attendance and a lot of engagement on virtual events. However, now every event was national, meaning before our clients would have events all the time. Our clients have an event probably every night of the week. I can't go to all of them because I'm not in the... But now I can. And now everyone can. And so I think our fatigue and our conflicts grew really quickly. 
because of that. So as much as you can reach a wider audience because it's national, you also have way more competition. So now that we're in whatever phase to just date ourselves, we're almost in July of 2022, we're kind of in this phase where we're open and people are leaving their houses and they're going to in-person events. And there's also a quantity of people who still want to remain virtual. And so there's virtual events that people can tune in from anywhere, but then they're also competing with the in-person events, such as you know movies, theater, concerts, whatever it is. And so I think that events in particular have gotten increasingly difficult. And so the biggest pivot we made was that every virtual event or in-person for that matter has got to be really unique so much that people really want to come. It's not just another meeting. And so we've done things like we, one of our thriller authors, his main character drinks fine vodka. So we partnered with a vodka company to do a vodka tasting alongside. So you can, you know, drink like Evan Smoke, like drink like his character. And that was something that was interesting. We had another author partner with a local musician who wrote a song based on the book and did a live concert. We've had different sort of workshops and demos. One of our clients did a cooking demo, if I remember, of how to make one of the recipes in the book. And so things where it's not just you're sitting on another Zoom meetings, something that's more engaging and more interesting. And anytime we're able to send things home. So for the vodka tasting, anyone who ordered through the bookstore got a jar of olives that they got in time to enjoy their vodka for that event. So anytime we can, making it more experiential, I think whether it's in person or online, I think we now want experiences Mm -hmm. versus just going and watching or listening to something. Especially because we're watching or listening all day. That's our work day now. Indeed. Right. Yeah. I was trying to pinpoint. I'm like, I used to be on the phone all day. Mm -hmm. Why is it so exhausting to be on Zoom all day? And I think it's because everyone's watching you watch. (laughs) I mean, I can talk about the the whole time, you know, (laughs) the Zoom fatigue is real. And I think the other piece is I'm not a psychologist and I don't pretend to be, I don't play one in real life either. But from what I understand, because this also was interesting to me, because like I said, we've always been dispersed. We've always been remote. So why all of a sudden does it feel so much more strenuous? And I think that when we see ourselves on screen, our brain is confused and it takes a little bit of recalibrating. And because we do this all day long, our brains are constantly recalibrating and therefore like they get exhausted. So pro tip, I don't see myself right now headed in my self view. And I encourage everyone to do that too, because it reduces fatigue dramatically. Yeah. I find that same thing. Like I usually leave my camera on, but sometimes it's a later meeting in the day. I just turn the camera off. I'm like, Mm -hmm. you get me, but you don't get this face. What are you going to (laughs) do? So, but I love these ideas and how creative they are and so customized to the specific book and the specific author. It's what makes it interesting. Yeah. If we did the same thing for every author, I would like, I used the assembly line or conveyor belt analogy earlier. That's what it would feel like. And that doesn't feel great. I think the coming up with creative ideas or things that are, haven't been done is really what makes this interesting. 
And I'm sure it makes your campaigns more successful as well. I would love to say that everything is a runaway success, but that would be wrong. I think if we don't have any failures, we're not trying hard enough and (laughs) not taking enough risks. Love it. Love it. Because I think the going back to like the psychographics of our clients, Uh they're all risk takers. They, They all have this attitude of like, well, you know, we try it. If it fails, it fails. Worth a shot. That kind of attitude. And if someone only wants to do things that are in guaranteed success, they're probably not the right fit for us. And so we have principles that, you know, principles of giving someone an experience, nurturing the relationship, making sure they see a book several times, all of those things, those fundamentals are there, but how we do that changes. And most of our clients are really game to try, try different things. Love it. Love it. I'd love to hear what you have to say about the social media post of buy my book strategy. Hmm. It doesn't work. So, you know, maybe (laughs) break it down for the listeners a little bit. I think I see it way too often to think that people aren't still kidding themselves. So (laughs) it's interesting because we spoke about this earlier as like, I was a very early adopter of social media, a user of social media, but I don't believe social media sells books. I honestly don't. So if any of our clients tell us, I don't want to do social media, it's really not a deal breaker for us. I'll usually tell them why they might want to, but careers were not made or broken on social media. Authors are not there to be influencers, right? You're there to nurture your audience. So the cycle of social media, as I see it, is that most authors think, okay, I have to build up an audience so that I can sell to them. And that's how publishers think too. However, what actually happens is readers find their books, want to further engage with them, and then connect with them on social media. So if you think about it, many of us are not surfing Instagram or surfing Twitter, finding new people to follow. We see a retweet or we go to their concert or we see a movie or we see the book or whatever. We consume the art and then we want to connect with the artist. And so your social media serves as a place for your fans to communicate and engage with you in between books. And that's really where your followers jump. So love it. Our authors get dripped in followers, you know, over the course of the year, but it's when their book comes out that their social media following increases because all these new readers are finding them and wanting to connect with them. So most of the people who are connected with you have bought one of your books or at least are familiar with you in some way. So instead, if you share content that will deepen the relationship with people who have read your book, and make those who haven't feel a little left out, right. I view it as the most successful. Oh my gosh. This is such a jewel of information to share this. And it's so true. And you know, people have this misconception that social media causes book sales and it doesn't. But I've never heard it put this way that about like they consume the art and then they go look for the artist or they consume the book and then they go look for the writer. And that is so spot on. And so valuable for authors to know and to understand. I've heard people be like, oh, well, I bought a book because I saw it on social media. But it's not the fact that you saw it on social media. It's the fact that you saw it multiple places and social media may have tipped the scales. Or a person you really respect their opinion posted about it. I mean, that's why book talk, bookstagrammers, they have so much influence because it's like your friend recommending things to you. I've definitely purchased things because I saw them on social, but it wasn't that someone posted it. It was that someone I trusted 
posted it or many, many people I know posted it. I work in publishing. So I get a lot of books. <laughs> I yeah. have a lot of books. I have a to be read bookshelf, not as most of us do. I don't growing. I can't keep up with it. It grows faster, it, but I knock them down. It grows faster than we can read. <laughs> and I don't actually buy that many books. And when I buy them, I buy them because I'm at events and I'm supporting someone, but reading them is trickier. The last book that I bought and read within like two weeks was The School for Good Mothers, Jessamine Chen. I think that's the author. I apologize. And I noticed that. I was like, wow, I just bought a frontless hardcover <laughs> and read it within two weeks. What did that? I had seen the book reviewed and the reviews looked really interesting. And then I saw several people posting that they were reading the book. I saw her posting that her book was out. And then what finally did it was my local bookstore down the street said they had autographed copies and stuff. Ah, I was like, you know what? I'm going to be out. I'm going to go grab that book. And because everyone was talking about it, I wanted to read it because I wanted to be in on the conversation. There you go. And so I think that social media sells books, but not in the way most authors think. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about the only time that I'm consciously aware that I bought a book because of, oh no, two times in the last year. And this is the one that really caught me by surprise is a friend of mine posted about this book. He said, first of all, it was written by a friend of hers because that's the thing when you're in publishing, you know a lot of authors, but I mean, I know a lot of people who write books. I don't buy all the books, (laughs) right? But so she had bought it devoured it, posted about how fabulous it was. And I just went and bought it. I didn't read any reviews or do anything. I was like, oh, Sam bought it. I'm buying, I'm buying it. You know? And then the other was, yeah, just a friend that I know, you know, a book and it finally came out and I was interested, but I found out it was available on social media. Your followers have connected with you because they like your books. Now you have an easy way to remind them when you have a new one out. Mm-hmm. It's just that trigger, that reminder. They're going to buy from you anyway. So the advertisements, the newsletter, the social media posts are there to cue in, to remind them, hey, you already want this book. Right. <laughs> so go ahead and buy it. It's available today. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an important distinction though, because you know I've heard a lot of people spend a lot of money on social media ads to try to sell books. And publishers do too. And that always surprises me. So the thing I'll say with social media ads, and this doesn't include Amazon, Amazon's different. So I don't want this to be lumped in there, though they're similar. So Facebook ads, Instagram ads, LinkedIn ads, they feel good. They feel really good. You can (laughs) see clicks, you can see engagements, you can see likes. They feel really good. But you actually don't know if they're working because you can't track conversions. So if you are an indie author and your point of sale is through your website, then you can track it. Right. You also earn more money per book than a traditionally published author. So maybe it's worth it. Mm -hmm. But when you start tracking it and you start actually tracking the conversion. So most of our authors who, if they're going to do social media ads, I try to do newsletter signups as the conversion, because I can track that. I can see how many people actually got onto their newsletter. And you'll see that the conversions can cost up to $5 per conversion. Mm -hmm. 
So if you're earning a dollar per book, I was going to say, if you have a book deal, you might not like that. (laughs) Correct. If you're earning a dollar per book, then you're taking a big loss. You are losing money by running those ads. Now, if you are promoting the first book in a series and you have a 10 book series and one reader could potentially be valued at $10 because they could buy all of your books, that's something different. So usually I encourage the authors to run ads for their newsletter sign up because then they can further engage with them. And I don't encourage debut authors. I focus on the authors who have like five books under their belt. That makes so much sense. I remember when I started in publishing, my mentor and employer was at the level where, you know, when his books would come out, the New York Times would take out a $20,000 half page ad, you know, which is funny now. It's like quaint. That just shows how old I am, but, <laughs> but to promote the books. But, you know, even then, an advertisement from the publisher was not really how books were sold. Again, unless it was like a brand name author where this was like his, I think I started working with him on his like 12th book, you know, and we did three books in three years. So obviously he had a following, but really that wasn't the game changer in terms of his book sales. No, it just made you feel good. Yeah. It feels good to open the New York Times and find an ad. And for 20K, you can feel good too. And that's what I feel about Facebook ads is that a lot of authors feel really good running them. They feel really good seeing that they feel that they're doing something. But when you really crunch the numbers and look closely at your goals, they tend to not add up. Yeah. And in his case, Random House paid that bill. But if you're the author paying that bill and you compare that to your royalties, it's really not going to be your best investment. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. Brilliant. Wow. Dana, I could just talk to you all day. This is also good. Likewise. All right. But here we go. I'm going to go ahead and skip my final favorite question, which is what did I not ask you that you would love to answer? You asked me a lot of great questions. I knew that that was coming. So I was like thinking about it as you were asking. You asked me lots of great questions. You've heard my show before. (laughs) So I would say if an author was going to do one thing to help promote their book or to have a better promotion, what would it be? Brilliant question. And, (laughs) And the answer is, is to create a method of capturing and connecting with readers. So I understand that not everyone wants to be on social media. You don't have to. I know that not everyone wants a newsletter. You don't have to. But think about how you are going to connect with and engage with your readers and put that in place. The nice thing about social media, the nice thing about newsletter is that collection is voluntary and happens automatically. But maybe you're going to connect by having a, you know, one Friday every month you go live and you do a Zoom call with whoever wants to show up. Whatever it is, put something in place where the people who are reading your book connect with you and further engage with you. Because the more engaged your readers are, the more likely they're going to come back and buy really whatever you write. Mm -hmm. Which actually points to another thing that we know, which is the more books you write, the more books you sell. And not just the new books, but you sell more of your backlist. 100%. 100%. Nothing sells book one like book two. (laughs) That's a great saying. 
That could be on a bumper sticker or a bag, a book bag. A book bag. <laughs> All right. Next ALA. That's what we're in. <laughs> or BA, right? <laughs> Great minds, Dana. I went, I went to BA, you went to ALA, but you know, <laughs> same concept. All the same. <laughs> Oh, well, once again, this has just been so value packed and so many wonderful, wonderful bits of advice. And just, I want to thank you again for being with us here today on the Author's Corner. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of the Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time. 